0: Ezekiel chapter 10, a study we're calling The Departed. God had departed from the Holy of Holies, but He came back for a short while. Back in verse 3 of chapter 9, His glory, we read, had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. In verse 3 of chapter 10, God's glory comes back a little, and we're told it filled the inner court. He lingered there until verses 18 and 19, we'll see. And then finally... In chapter 11, in verses 22 and 23, we see that God had departed not just the temple, but the city. I'm struck that God lingered in and around the sanctuary for a time. I think we're being shown that God was reluctant to depart. It was His will and desire to dwell among His people. He'd been at work ever since the Garden of Eden to make the way back into His presence for the human race. His glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the Jewish temple. But as we've seen in our previous studies in Ezekiel, his people had forsaken him for other gods. <clears throat> they had set up idols in the temple itself. And so God must depart. They tempted God. They didn't think he would do this. You know, he had his own kind of address and building and residence and and. They believed his glory was at stake and, and that he wouldn't do this. Now, he had told them that his glory would depart if they disobeyed him, book of Deuteronomy and such, but they tempted the Lord. Still, we see that he lingered reluctant to do so. It takes nothing away from the deity or majesty of God to say that he was reluctant. I'm not adding a new quality to uh, to God, I'm just... Talking about his behavior here, it it magnifies to me his long suffering and grace and mercy reminds us that we were created for the express purpose of having fellowship with God. Everything else ought to be subordinate to our having a relationship with him. Uh, And so so the Lord to me kind of a precious thing uh, as we'll see him talk about judgment as we've read about some of the. Terrible judgments that are coming on Jerusalem, uh, in terms of what is actually and physically going to happen to the people. It's it's too easy to uh, to lose the sense of, of uh, you know uh, emotion here, really, and love and grace and mercy, and, and that God is lingering, maybe even still hoping for uh, some repentance. Now, we're describing God departing His sanctuary on the earth because that's what happens in this passage. What application might this have to us? Well, since each individual believer is now the temple of God, we can safely say that He will not depart from us. We talked about this some weeks ago. Um, We don't believe that the Lord comes and goes from our life in terms of our salvation or our indwelling. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and it is our permanent possession. That's not to say that we can't quench the Spirit or grieve the Spirit or uh, ignore the Holy Spirit. It's just to say that that God is not going to depart from us. But we are also corporately the temple of God on the earth. Gatherings of Christians, churches, are also called the temple of God. Temple of the Holy Spirit. And there is a sense in which we might say God is no longer among us. uh, Or that is at least a potential. The most primary warning of just such a condition was issued by Jesus Himself when in His letter, His open letter to the church at Ephesus, He said that He would remove their lampstand if they failed to repent and return to their first love for Him. I mean, He said that. He goes, look, you guys... You know, you're working hard, Uh, you've got a lot of good things going, you've got a Caltech class going, and you know, you're doing all these other things. Uh, But I have something against you. You've left your first love. There's really no love in what you're doing. And so I need you to repent and return and do your first works, or else I'm going to take your lampstand away. Since a lampstand is that which gives off light, we can loosely interpret Jesus to mean that such a church... Would lose its light. It would lose its glow. Uh, its sense of the glory of the Lord. Things would be going on there, but they wouldn't be supernatural. They wouldn't be spiritual. They would be natural. They would be, in a sense, carnal. They'd be going through the motions, but without the love, because Jesus said, "You just, you just don't. You're not in love with me, not in the way that you ought to be." And and, and so you need to return to that, so that your light doesn't fade so that I don't remove your lampstand. And so, uh, once again, as we work through God's presence departing from Israel, we're concerned with keeping our own fellowship with Him, both personal and corporate, keeping it vibrant and radiant. And so we're going to, a lot of this is descriptive, uh, and so we're going to take the whole chapter, and we're going to look at several verses at a time tonight. And we're starting in verse 1, of course, where it says, I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And then he said to the man clothed with linen, uh, he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. He went in as I watched. The man clothed with linen had first been charged with marking the righteous Jews so they would be spared the coming judgment. We saw him in chapter 9 with an inkhorn in his hand and he was told to mark certain individuals who were weeping and grieving over sin. And so God had a remnant of people there who knew him uh, intimately and were sorry for what was happening in their nation. Uh, and, And so this man had done that. Now he was to have a different function. He was going to take coals and scatter them over the city. Now, from an earthly perspective we know that Babylon would come and burn the city. That was the human agent, that was the physical agent that God would use to accomplish this divine purpose. From heaven's perspective, it was seen as a judgment from God. And so it's the same event seen from two different perspectives. Uh, The Babylonian army would come, they would burn the city, but really it was the Lord uh, arranging that, doing that, allowing that to judge his people. Verse three, now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and uh, paused over the threshold of the temple and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court like the voice of almighty God when he speaks. Now, I like this so much because once more there was a fullness of God's glory in the sanctuary. This is all about him departing, but he's come back and he's filling the sanctuary again, as it were, one last time. The court is full of his brightness. There's a mighty sound in the outer court. But apparently, though Ezekiel is describing this, the people are so hardened, they can't see it. They don't hear it we would say that their spiritual senses were dulled compare this to the day of pentecost when there was the sound of the mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire and 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 everybody ran over to see what was happening it was the same kind of a thing a physical phenomena but but here you know ezekiel says it was full of god's glory the the brightness was was there there was a mighty sound even in the outer court but no one saw it no one heard it everyone was dull to it In their case, we would say that their spiritual senses had been dulled by idolatry. They were going after the gods of the surrounding nations. Some of you understand what it is to have dull senses, right? I do. My wife, Pam, she's always saying, you need a hearing test. I said, I don't need a hearing test. I can't hear. I I admit it. What's the test? She goes, well, you need to get a hearing aid. I said, no, I'm not going to wear a hearing aid. Uh, you know, I just, I'm just not going to do it. I might wear one of the really cool ones, you know, that's the size of a pea that goes in your ear. Nobody can see it, but they're like one million dollars, I think. <laughs> no insurance on earth covers it. You know, you have to rob a bank to, to buy it or something, which I shouldn't give away my plan. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, I, I refuse. I'm not going to wear it here. It's not a vanity thing. I just, I'm just not going to do it. One, well, maybe it is a vanity thing because... <laughs> A few years ago, there's a, a beautiful brother in the Lord whose name uh, I will keep to myself. He's a pastor. And um, we were coming back from a, a retreat. And uh, it's it's so weird. You know, the modern world, everybody's got their cell phone. And everybody's, you know, there's four or five of us in the car talking on our cell phones. And our cell phones are interfering with his hearing aid. And it doesn't bother him. I don't know how it couldn't. But every time we're on his hearing aid, he's going... And we go, what is that? He goes, it's my hearing aid. Don't don't worry about it. I'm used to it. And so I'm just for that and many other reasons, you know. But if you've been around me, you know that I can't hear you. You see, I kind of, it's like I'm looking for your words. I'm hoping they're still out there somewhere. And and everything sounds like a mumble at the beginning, especially if you have a lower voice. You know, it's kind of like, you want to do that? what you know and and but if i think about it it's it's funny i don't know how this works but my mind can put back the words and i think just so just give me a minute and i can usually figure out what you said or i i just make something up and so if you talk to me sunday morning or any other time and i say something absurd to you it's because i'm too embarrassed to tell you i didn't hear you have you been to union bank who's been to union bank lately anybody anybody bank at union bank yeah it's like Fort Knox now, right? They've put in, like, plexiglass between you and the teller. And, and whenever I go into Union Bank, which is infrequently because of this, they're talking like this. And I'm like, what? I can't hear you. And, and now, of course, they can hear me. I don't know why I'm yelling. You know, I could just say, I, I'm sorry, I can't hear And I just say, look, I'm hard of hearing. I can't hear you. And then they go, oh. but they refuse to talk any louder. They're just, okay. That's fine. So I don't know if I'm giving them a million dollars if they're giving me. I don't know what we're transacting, but it's not business. So anyway, dull senses. Uh, obviously, many of us with glasses, you know, we don't see as well as we used to. Um, my, I can still taste things, I think, you know, that, you know, but our senses, they're going down. And so. Now, all of that's fine, but when your spiritual senses get dull, now you're in real trouble because the glory of the Lord is all around you. He's speaking all the time. Uh, But you can't see it. You can't hear it. It, You're not sensitive to it anymore. Their spiritual senses had been dulled by worldliness and idolatry. Idolatry because they were going after the gods of the surrounding nations. Worldliness because the practices that accompanied their idolatry were worldly in the worst sense. They were carnal and fleshly and immoral. Idolatry and worldliness around more than ever, I think. Uh, You know, it's always... Always don't, you know, I don't like to say that we're worse off than any other generation because you know, people think, well, everybody had these struggles. But in some ways, I think we are worse off than any generation because the kind of things that cause men and women to sin are so much more abundant now. They're so much more available now. Uh, I, I don't want to be crass, and I'm hoping there's not too many real, real young people in here, but, but people... you know It wasn't too long ago that if you wanted to be involved with pornography... It was really difficult if you were a child, if you were a young adult. I mean, you, know, you, you had to really go out of your way to try and find pornography and hide it and figure all that out. And now you parents, you know you can't really keep pornography off of your computer. It, it's, it's almost impossible. You could have umpteen filters and you still walk through the living room and it's like, what is that? Uh, where did that come from? Uh, you know, and, and so it's just easier to be worldly now than it ever was. The, the world is encroaching. The world is a much smaller place. People always sinned. Sin is sin, but there's just so much more opportunity to do it now. Uh, and so we're in trouble. And, and with it all comes, I believe, the dulling of our spiritual senses. Not, it's not because we have technology and we use technology. I mean, you know, a lot of people get in, well, we're in a fast from technology. We're not monks you know, we, we, we don't have to go to a monastery. That doesn't work. Hello? I don't know. You know, these guys are weird, these monks, you know. I was telling somebody the story the other day of a... Uh, we were talking about some a Buddhist... We saw a Buddhist monk. And, and, uh, and I remembered one time we were in uh, Hong Kong. And uh, I was with another pastor. And we saw this guy, this Buddhist, walk by in his saffron robes, you know. And I didn't pay any attention to it, but uh, the guy I was with, he said, hey, let's I want to talk to that guy. But it turned out he was a Westerner. You could tell, you know, he wasn't Oriental. And so and so we detained him, uh, you know, and by asking him questions, well, it turns out he was on his way to meditation, I guess, to learn the way of peace and, and we, we actually got him angry. It was so fun doing that, you know. He, he, we just like, you know, here I'm, he's like, we ruined his whole Buddhist thing, you know, and stuff. He's trying to have peace and joy, and we're like, well, can you ask, you know, we're Christian. We just like to know some, well, I'm late for meditation. Well, you know, we have some questions about Buddha, you know, and stuff. And, and uh, anyway, it was, it was kind of fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, so we're not talking about just giving up all that stuff, but we need to be careful because... Um, we can experience a worldliness unknown to previous generations. If we're not ever so careful, we will try to mingle idols and worldliness in our walk with the Lord, and the result has to be a dullness to the things of the Lord. Uh, and so now, there are times when it seems that God is not speaking to you, You know, where, where it can be one of those spiritual trials or tests. A lot of times i found it's because God's already told me something and I just didn't like it. And so I'm wanting him to tell me something else. Uh, But, you know, there's times when God seems a little bit silent. But that in itself is an answer. But I'm I'm talking about when you're just kind of in a spiritual dullness and you think, wow, nothing's going on in my life and God's not speaking. I don't have any direction. People are talking about being led by the Spirit. I don't even know what that means and and stuff. And a lot of times I think we have to, you know, let's always start with ourselves. I want to start with you. It's your fault. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, but I need to start with myself because most of the time it's my fault. It's not your fault. You have your own problems. Deal with your problems. I have my problems with the Lord, And, and so often it's because I'm just not really sensitive anymore to the things of the Lord because I've allowed things into my life to dull me and, and, and the Lord is speaking. I just don't hear it. And, and, uh, you know, he's speaking all the time through types and images and similes and other believers and Bible studies and in many different ways. If I can't hear the Lord, then I need to check my own sensations. And so he's there speaking, glorious. Our walk may seem dull because we have become dull. So verse 6, then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen saying, take fire from among the wheels and among the cherubim. That he went in and stood beside the wheels, and the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim. He took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with the linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by the cherub, and another wheel by each uh, other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of a barrel stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. And their whole body, with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that, are the, four, that the four had, full of eyes all around. And as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing, wheel. Now, Ezekiel provides another fantastic description of these cherubim and their movements. Why does he emphasize the wheels and then say at the end, the wheels were called wheel? I mean, it does, it does sound strange, doesn't it? I mean, of all the things, this is the word of God. You're expecting something really profound. And he says, and the wheels were called wheel. Well, now, I had to stop and think about this. And I'm not saying this is the answer, but. It does seem to keep me grounded in the fact that this was something he could describe using his normal language. He says the wheels were called wheel because they were wheels. Now, that may not seem like much, but if you study through some of this stuff outside of biblical circles and even in some biblical scholarship... It's common for people to say that these Old Testament prophets and even into the New Testament with the Apostle John, especially on the island of Patmos, they didn't know what they were seeing. They were seeing machines from the future. They were seeing Terminator salvation or something like that, you know, which I haven't seen, but only on the trailers. But anyway, you know, they were seeing these things coming, you know, helicopters and they were like. It's a wheel within a wheel and, you know, it's like a flying scorpion or something. And and they're trying to describe things in first century language. And others say, well, no, they're describing spacecraft. Uh, You know, these are alien visitors. And this is how you would a, a sixth century or fifth century man would describe an alien visitation. Well, Ezekiel said they were wheels and somebody told me they're wheels. What were they? They were wheels. And so I don't think these guys are as stupid as we give them credit for. Uh, Plus, they're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're not struggling to describe uh, these things. Uh, and, And it's very important. The wheels he saw were called not by him, but someone in the vision wheels, as if to answer the question, were these really wheels or something he was struggling to describe? They're wheels. They're still fantastic wheels, Heavenly for sure, but wheels nonetheless. Not a close encounter with a visitor from outer space. Not a futuristic flying machine. It was the chariot of God that we've already seen in chapter 1. Now in verse 14, each one had four faces. The first face like the face of a cherub. The second face like the face of a man. The third the face of a lion. And the fourth the face of an eagle. The cherub were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Kabar. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them, and when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. Uh, When the cherubim stood up, the wheels stood still, and when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. Now, Ezekiel makes it abundantly clear these are the same cherubim he saw in chapter 1. Some of the detail he gives is different, uh, but I think that's to be expected. Now, some people get really tripped up in this because they compare the, the details from Chapter 1 with the details of Chapter 10, and they say there's differences, and I just say that that is normal. Uh, there would be differences in your description because you're seeing things from a different angle, different perspective. Sometimes you're uh, seeing things with more detail, less detail. Um, one of the things Pam likes to do is make up photo scavenger hunts for Disneyland. And uh, she'll go, and uh, because there's so much detail that you can overlook. So she finds obvious but obscure objects. She photographs them with no background reference and asks you to find them while you're there. And it's actually lots of fun. Uh, And and what it does is you start to notice things more than you've ever noticed before. And and some stuff is just really hard to find, isn't it, Carla? Uh, So... (laughs) Or whoever, you know, and stuff. And so you'll get a photograph of something like this. Where is that black? And it sounds silly, but it's really very fun. And and there's a lot of cool stuff. And so and you notice things that you haven't noticed before. And so when you compare Ezekiel's two descriptions, there's just some differences. That's not a problem. Critics try to say the differences prove the Bible's not inspired. But that's just dumb. It proves just the opposite. Because if I was a uh, trying to fake something I'd cut and paste all my descriptions so that they all matched. I wouldn't give a, you know, you'd have to be, well, it's just people are looking for ways to criticize the Word of God. And, you know, we're, we're open to dealing with their criticisms, but some criticisms are just dumb on the surface. You know, just because somebody has a criticism doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it even makes sense. Some people say that, uh, you know, on a, just on a personal note, they say, well, there's some truth in every criticism. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. That's not true. I know what they mean. They mean that you should be humble and you should be able to receive correction and, and all that. And I'm working on that. But, uh, but uh, you know, sometimes criticism is just criticism. Sometimes there are people who are mean-spirited, unfortunately. none. You wouldn't know anything about that because you're so nice and wonderful and and so am I. And so, you know, we don't have this kind of... But out in the world, there are people who are just mean and nasty and... And when critics come to the Bible and they're just trying to find these things, you know, there are difficulties in the Scripture. We love them because they cause us to think. But there aren't any real problems. And it's certainly not a problem that Ezekiel had slightly different descriptions of these same individuals uh, because uh, it's at a different time and a different angle, a different place, uh, those kinds of things. And so don't get tripped up by that. Now, we saw in chapter 1 that the cherubim formed a kind of chariot throne for God. The emphasis here is the presence and the glory of God in his sanctuary among his people. But as we've seen, he's only coming back. uh, He's already started to depart. He's come back for a time. Now he's departing. Verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. The cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house the glory of the God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kabar, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, each one had four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Kabar, their appearance and their persons. They each went straight forward." Ezekiel keeps hammering his point, these were the same cherubim from chapter 1. This is what they look like. These were those guys. This was the chariot. Why the repetition? Again, just speculating, but here's what the repetition reminds me of. When Elijah was about to be taken to heaven in another chariot, he told Elisha that a double portion of his spirit, would, of God's spirit, would uh, be given him if Elisha saw Elijah taken away. And so Elisha was Elijah's servant. I sometimes wish they had different names. I wish he picked a guy named Pete for his servant, so that I didn't. Because I always get there. I have to actually think, Elisha, Elijah. You know, just it would have been better. Pete, Pete and Elijah would have been much better, but it wasn't. So Elisha was Elijah's servant for I think about ten years. He was going to be the next prophet after Elijah, but he just had to hang around Elijah for a long time and be discipled with nothing really happening. And so it became known somehow that Elijah was going to be taken away. And so all the other prophets said, "Well, you're going to be in charge, so just let Elijah go, you know, do what prophets do, uh, you know, when they go out to pasture, basically, and and start your profiting." And Elisha said. I'm still the servant of Elijah. I'm going to be with him. He's my master. And he stuck with him. And finally, Elijah said, what do you want from me? And Elisha said, I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah said, if you're with me when the Lord takes me, then you will have that double portion. And so Elisha sticks with him like glue, even to the point they go way out into the wilderness. Elijah parts the Jordan River. They go on the other side, the river is swollen, there's no way back across except by miracle. And so now you're out all by yourself with Elijah, and all of a sudden this chariot comes, the chariot of fire, it comes to take Elijah away, and Elisha says, to who? The chariot, the chariot of God. And what's he? You know, Elisha knows it's the chariot of God. God knows it's the chariot of God. Everybody, there's no one else there. So what's he doing? Well, he is letting God know that he was expecting to receive the double portion promised and to go forward serving the Lord. Elijah said, "If you see this, then you're 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 going to be granted a double portion of the Spirit." And so Elisha sees it and he says, "I see it. There it is. That's the chariot." And so it, it's almost. I hate to use the phrase because it's so, you know, but it's a word of faith, you know, where he, he says, Hey, I'm claiming that promise. And from that point on, I man, he is walking in the power, he gets the mantle, he parts the Jordan River. I mean, he's going for it, and he does about twice as many miracles as Elijah did in his career. It's fantastic. Ezekiel is keeps pointing out this same chariot, as it were. There it is, that's the chariot, that's the cherubim. And to me it speaks that he was expecting to go forward serving the Lord. This is what Elisha had done. He said, I saw the chariot, now I'm going to serve the Lord. Ezekiel said, that's the chariot. I saw it in chapter 1. I'm seeing it again. It's depart. But I'm going to serve the Lord. Regardless the grim prospects because Jerusalem would fall, he would go forward serving the Lord. Regardless the fact God's visible, physical, glorious presence would depart from Israel, He would go forward serving the Lord. This is really quite a moment in the life of God's prophet. Think of it. God's city on earth would burn. His temple would burn. His very presence would depart. It wasn't coming back anytime soon. But his prophet would take it all in stride and go forward serving the Lord. There would be no visible reason to serve the Lord. No city no sanctuary, no glory cloud. From one perspective, it would seem that the God of Israel had been defeated by the Babylonians, right? They came in, they burned the city, they burned the sanctuary, they raided the sanctuary. That, on an earthly level, you know, for you to say, oh no, uh, you know, we're still victorious. No, you're crazy now, I mean, you've been defeated. And so this is a, a real downturn uh, you know, for a prophet. The return of God's glory wouldn't be for hundreds of years, and it wouldn't be until Jesus came as God in human flesh. And then it would be a veiled glory, only momentarily revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then again for 40 days after the resurrection, and then again at His ascension. For the Jews, the return of His glory is still future. It, it's waiting for His second coming. And so Ezekiel continues to be presented to us as a remarkable servant under very difficult, we would say stressful and depressing and discouraging circumstances. And through it all, he says, I see the chariot of the Lord. I see it. It's taking him away, but I see it. And I've seen it, and I'm going to go forward with the promise of, of His calling and power on my life. And so I sat there and I thought, can I go forward serving the Lord if there's no visible reason to do so? Am I really willing to walk by faith? The more that is taken away from me, does it draw me closer to the Lord or does it drive me further away from the Lord? I mean, I look at Ezekiel and I say, man, if you want to quit, now's the time. You want to put in your resignation? This is a great time to resign the ministry of the prophet. You're never going to be a priest. The sanctuary is going to be destroyed. That's what you trained for. Uh, Now God wants you to be a prophet... Give this last prophecy. Just go out there and say, hey, the glory of the Lord has departed. Just go around yelling Ichabod, which is a a name given to an Old Testament guy, who a kid that was born in a time of defeat, and his father died, and his mother died in childbirth, and they named him Ichabod. It means the glory of the Lord has departed. So just go around for a few days saying, Ichabod, Ichabod. And then figure out how to retire in Babylon as a watch repairman or something. You know I mean, just you know, get, just get into the flow of Babylonian society and, and give up this prophecy business. As it was, none of the people in Babylon he was ministering to believed that the sanctuary was actually going to fall. He was prophesying beforehand of the destruction, and they were like, "Well, that's not going to happen. God would never let that happen. And so just resign. That's what I would have done. But he says, no, there's that chariot. I've got that in my head. I want to tell you about it over and over again. I've seen the glory of the Lord. It's departed, but I've seen it. And it, it's kind of left an image that I that I can't get out of my heart. And I want to go forward serving the Lord. Job had practically everything taken from him. You know how they say to you, Well, at least you have your health. Well, sorta. You know, I mean, boils all over your body, scraping them with a pot shirt. Pus dripping down, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a nasty situation. That's not health, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a problem. But he could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Wow. That's pretty much all that ha- there was left to do to Job. Everything taken from him, all of his possessions, all of the people that meant anything to him. He had limited health. The last thing would, it, it, finally, the Lord had told Satan, he says, just don't kill him. Do everything else but don't kill him. And, and then Job sits there and he says, if he kills me, I'll still trust him. So you've, you've taken everything but my very life and that do that if you'd like. Habakkuk would experience terrible political and economic woe, but he declared, though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. If we grow dull because we keep adding things, then God will strip them away so our senses for Him can be heightened again. And thus, I believe He lingers over each of us. He's reluctant to let us depart from His glory. And He's working in our lives To keep us in a place where our senses can hear him, can see him, can feel him, uh, and where we can go on serving him. But we need to be sharp. We need to stay sharp uh, because we have enemies within and without that seek to dull our senses uh, and ruin us for these last days in which we live. Be sharp.